We'll be looking today at verses 13 through 19. In these verses, we find specific instruction on how our steadfast hope in Christ and the eternal inheritance that we have in Him affect the way we live right here and right now. The book of 1 Peter is all about strengthening God's people in their faith so that we might live steadfast and godly lives in this world as we fix our hopes on the next world. So in this book, as Peter gets started in chapter 1, he reminds us of our new life in Christ and the security that we have in Him. He reminds us of eternal life and the guaranteed inheritance that we have in heaven that is being preserved for us by God Himself. As this world grows more hostile toward God and His people, and as we feel less and less at home here, less and less welcome in this world, we begin to realize that this world is not our home, and our hope is not found here. Peter is teaching that to us, and what he writes here is meant to turn our hearts and our minds toward heaven and toward Christ, and toward eternal security. And with heaven as our home, and with Christ as our desire, and eternity as our ultimate destination, Peter's point is that we can live steadfastly and godly in this present age, even though we are, as it were, pilgrims passing through unwelcome pilgrims passing through. And even in the face of great resistance and hostility, we can be steadfast and faithful to the Lord. Having laid that hopeful theological foundation then in chapter 1, Peter begins in chapter 2 to give practical instruction for how to live that truth out right here and right now. And in the beginning of chapter 2, he calls God's people to be holy, to pursue holiness, to cultivate godly character in our daily living, character that reflects the holy and righteous standing we have already been given in Christ. Now as we come to verse 11 and go on through the rest of the chapter, Peter gives some practical applications for where, when, and how we are to live that holy life in the world today. And it all boils down to the command that he gives in verse 12, when he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, as we saw last time a few weeks ago, live honorably among the unbelievers in the world. Live honorably among them. Your behavior matters. What that means is, it doesn't just matter what you do, it matters how you do it. And it communicates to the world around you what you really believe about God. When Christians respond to an angry and hostile world with angry and hostile behavior, we communicate that we don't really believe God is in charge and that God is sovereign over our circumstances. You see, our behavior matters. It communicates. And if we live honorably among the world, if we reflect godly conviction and godly commitment and godly character, yes, Many will hate us. They'll hate us even more. But they will not be able to level any legitimate charge against us or our God. And even in the face of great resistance, though most of the world reject us and what we believe, some, Peter says, will see. They will see our honorable life 
they will be led to faith in Christ. Christians, God is still on his throne. He is still sovereign. He is still in charge. The church is still victorious. The gospel still works. And so God's people must still persevere and in steadfast hope and live honorably demonstrating the character of God before a watching world. That's what Peter is calling us to. That is the essence of what we learn in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. The command to honorable living. And then that prepares us for our text this morning, verses 13 through 19, which describe for us the context of honorable living. The context of honorable living. In what parts of our lives are we to live in such a way? Well, in short, the answer is in all of them. But what does that look like? What specifically is he talking about? How do we make that happen? Peter explains that beginning in verse 13. So please follow along with me as I begin in verse 13 and read down through verse 19. Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. As I said already, we see the command to honorable living in verses 11 and 12. And for more on that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the message from April 18th, which deals with those verses. But with that command in mind, then, we see here in verses 13 through 19, the context of honorable living. Not just the command, but the context. And that context here breaks down into two specific areas in which we are called to live honorably before the world. In relation to civil authority and in relation to what we could call vocational authority or the workplace. There's a third area that I'll mention later, but Peter doesn't get to that until chapter 3, so we'll save it for there. The first area of honorable living, then, that Peter deals with here is in regard to civil authority. Now, I find it very interesting that we come to a passage like this at the present time. Don't you? The church's relationship to civil authority has recently become a hot topic among Christians. And for good reason. I read this morning of another pastor in Canada who's been arrested for preaching. But you know me well enough to know that my conviction is that we should not be letting the issues of the day dictate what we preach from the pulpit. But rather that we ought to let the word of God speak to the issues of the day. And when we do that, we find the benefit of systematic expository preaching through books of the Bible. God speaks in God's way at God's time to the issues of the day. And when God's word speaks, we find it incredibly relevant and sufficient to teach us how to live godly in this present world. I find it interesting that we come to a passage like this in a day like today. But there's another thing I find very interesting about this passage of Scripture. And that is the context in which Peter wrote it. Peter was not writing in a modern Western culture. 
Peter was not writing with America on his mind. In our lives, for the most part, in our experience, we have not yet been coerced, compelled, or threatened to act contrary to our sincerely held Christian beliefs. We have been encouraged, no doubt. We have even been pressured, no doubt. But what we have witnessed in our lifetime has not yet approached what Peter had to witness in his lifetime. I suspect we may be headed there, but we haven't seen it yet. But we can learn from Peter, who has been further down this road. And when we consider this context, we understand something of the seriousness of what Peter is saying in these verses. And when we consider the context of the Christians to whom he is writing, we understand something of the gravity of this message. They lived in the first century in the Roman Empire under the rule of a man named Nero. Christianity was new at the time. Still first generation. The Roman Empire was pagan in its religion, and so it was automatically aligned against Christianity. And Nero was by no means a leader who sought the respect and well-being of his people. He was a madman. He was vile. He was immoral. He was brutal. He was self-serving. And time does not allow for us to look at the examples of what he did to Christians. But it was pure evil. And no doubt most of the rulers under Nero followed his lead. And the things Christians were accused of at that time were nothing short of ridiculous lies. And the things they did to those Christians on the basis of those lies is nothing short of crazy brutality. But this is the harsh reality of the Christian's context in that day. And it is quickly becoming the context in which Christians live today throughout the world. Some have already faced that in other parts of the world. And now Peter gives some striking and somewhat unexpected instruction on how we are supposed to respond to the world in a context like that. And the first thing he says is this. Be subject to that. Are you kidding me, Peter? Are you kidding me, Peter? Seriously? What happened to organizing and forming coalitions? <laughs> it's not what the church is. We read in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to, right, and to uh, praise those who do good. It would be easy for Christians, when our hope is in heaven, to become indifferent to the world, right? Or to become disrespectful to the world, because after all, we are citizens of a higher kingdom and we know better, right? Peter writes here as if to prevent these attitudes in Christians. His point is that we may be citizens ultimately of heaven, and Jesus is our ultimate king, but we are called by that ultimate king to live here as godly citizens and to have a genuine concern for the good order of society in which we live today. So Peter says, be subject to earthly authorities. That word, that phrase, be subject, has the idea of arranging oneself under, as in a military formation under the authority of a commander. Some of you have been in situations like that in the military. You understand. Some of you have been in other situations that are similar. You understand that whether you know better than your commander or not, you follow orders whether he's nice or not, you follow orders. And most of the time, they're not nice. 
maybe in everyday operations, but I'll tell you what, you get the boot camp in on nice, aren't they? But you submit. That's the idea. It has the idea of submission and obedience of earthly authorities as we seek the good of our society through good order, through structure, and through justice. In fact, we read in Proverbs 24, verses 21 and 22, My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change. That is, to those who are bent on overthrowing the king. For their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. That's a, that's a call. Don't associate with people. Don't get carried away with people whose motive is to overthrow the king. That's not what this is about. Friends, this is a truth that we as Christians must come to grips with and must grapple with and must learn how to handle in our lives, especially in the midst of what we are witnessing in our day, which is a clear cultural and moral revolution that Christians are not called by God to be revolutionaries or insurrectionists or protesters of social issues or violators of laws. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to be submissive to civil authorities, even if they are unreasonable, harsh, evil, and oppressive. And Peter gives the motivation for this submission when he says we ought to do so for the Lord's sake. The Christian's motivation for submission to civil authorities is not a political motivation. It's not even a practical one. Our submission is motivated by a desire to honor the Lord above all. After all, we know it is the Lord who has put that authority into place. The Apostle Paul makes this point very clear in Romans 13.1 when he wrote, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Different apostle, same context. Only this time he's writing to Christians in the capital of Nero's empire. We are to submit. And we are to submit because we desire to honor the Lord. Now, we submit not just to honor the Lord, but we submit to follow the example of Christ. To follow the example of Christ. We read about that later in chapter 2 here in verses 21 and 23, which remind us that Jesus was threatened, he was persecuted, he was falsely accused, he was falsely convicted, and he was even murdered. And yet while he stood his ground on this earth and he did not waver in truth or, or godliness or, or God's character or in his mission, he still submitted to all of it and went as a lamb to the slaughter. Why? Because he had entrusted himself to the Father, who is sovereign over all things, who is sovereign over all earthly rulers, and who has a perfect plan that he was fulfilling even through the evil acts of evil men. And so, as one commentator noted, instead of being preoccupied with political and social reform, Christ always focused on matters pertaining to his kingdom. God is pleased when unsaved people associate Christians with spiritual virtue, righteousness, love, graciousness, humility, and the gospel of salvation. So, Christians are called to godly submission on earth. And Peter gives now not just the command and not just the motivation, but he also tells us of the extent of that submission. He says to every human institution, to the emperor or to governors. The idea there is every level of civil authority. And I was thinking about this this week. What level of civil authority seems to be the most under attack in the world in which we live today? I'm not talking Washington. I'm talking for everyday life. It's often the police, right? And yet, what is it that our government insists on spending its time on? Reform programs, other programs, 
building itself up, right? If we had to boil the government down to one essential function, it would have to be, biblically, the police. <laughs> Why? Because he says they're here to punish the evil and to reward the good, <laughs> right? And, and who helps enforce those laws? Okay, I'm not going to get off on any more of that. But every level of civil authority from the top down, and that includes those we like and those we don't. That includes the ones who are good and the ones who aren't. God has put them all there for his particular sovereign purpose. And even if they do evil, they are still under the sovereign authority and plan of God. And we submit to them. Because we submit to God and to his ultimate sovereign authority, even when they make decisions we don't agree with. Understand this. Our submission to civil authorities is not about them. And it's not about their character or their values or their behavior or even their decisions. And it's not about what we think of them or whether we voted for them or not. Our submission is all about God and our trust in Him. Now, if you look around very carefully, you can see a significant elephant standing in this room, and I think I need to address it. There's a question that probably most of you are thinking at this point. Is there ever a point when we are supposed to resist or disobey our civil authorities? And you might be thinking that to this point, my answer to that is no. But my answer to that is yes. Because Scripture's answer to that is yes. But not until we understand this principle. Not until we understand what Peter is teaching here. Yes, there is a time when we have to resist and when we have to disobey. And it has to do with those times when there is a direct conflict between God's command and the command of civil authority to God's people. And though Peter doesn't emphasize that in this text as much, he hints at it, and he certainly understands that point. After all, it was Peter in Acts 4 and 5 who stood up to the authorities when they told him, stop preaching, and Peter's response was what? You judge who I have to obey. I have to obey God rather than men. But what was the context? You are not allowed to preach that message. You are not allowed to do what Jesus has specifically called you to do in this world. And Peter says, I obey him. And he directly defied these civil authorities, not once, but many times. And Peter puts it a little bit more subtly here in verse 14 by describing the true purpose of civil authorities. Now, this this sets up a fence, if you will. It sets up a boundary line of what the civil authorities are here to do. And he says it's, it is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The Apostle Paul, again, expounds on that in Romans 13. And he highlights three fundamental purposes for any earthly government. As God defines it, it is to restrain evil, it is to promote good, and it is to punish wrongdoing. And all of those things, as God defines evil and good, not as culture defines them. When civil authorities are working within those parameters, there is no conflict between God's authority and the authority of earthly governments. And so we submit. Furthermore, when the earthly government rejects any of those areas, it puts Christians into a difficult spot, yes, to be sure, but we are still able to submit by and large. And we are still able to operate with a, within a spirit of submission. However, there sometimes does come a point where the government starts putting us into a dilemma where we have to choose between obedience to God or obedience to them. And when we are put into that spot, we have to obey God. But even when we have to disobey here in obedience to God, we have to do so in a spirit of submission. I'll give you an example. I recently wrote a letter to our county council because they, at this time, are considering a piece of legislation that conflicts not just with religious liberty as the Constitution expresses it, but also 
with Christian conscience as directed by Scripture. My purpose in writing that letter was not to attack or disrespect our local government. My purpose was not to demand that they believe and think like I do, though I wish they would. My purpose in writing that letter was to communicate to them that should this legislation pass, many Christian leaders in our county will now be put into a position of having to disobey on the basis of their sincerely held Christian beliefs. Not only is that un-American, it is unbiblical. They can't do it. I wanted to communicate to them this idea. We don't want to disobey. We're not looking for a fight. I'm not looking to to make you conform to my worldview if you don't want to. We're not looking to make an issue with you. We don't want to disobey. We want to submit. We want to work under your authority as God has directed us. But we cannot for any reason disobey God. And if that legislation passes, as I expect one day it will, Our goal isn't to burn the city down. Our goal isn't to start picketing on the council members' front lawns. We don't riot. We don't lay down in the street and block traffic. We don't disrupt the safety and good order of our society. And we certainly don't start attacking the other institutions of government that God has put in place. But we don't compromise our beliefs and our obedience to God either. We take our stand when we must. And we do so graciously, and we graciously and patiently and godly bear the consequences as our Christian forefathers have done before us. We don't go looking for a fight. We don't go looking for persecution under every rock. We do, we do as much as we can to follow the authorities that God has put in place in our society, but we cannot compromise our obedience to the Lord. That is the spirit behind what Peter is teaching here. God's people are not revolutionaries or insurrectionists or subversive influences in society. We're not called to take up every social cause and go to war over it. Nor are we called to go looking for for, for conflicts. Our mission is to proclaim Christ and the good news of salvation. That's why we're here. And we do that by living as citizens of God's kingdom above all. We strive to be good citizens right here. We live godly lives. We cultivate godly homes. We love our neighbors. And if we get into conflict with our civil authorities or with our communities, it must only be because we are striving to do those things as God has called us to do. That brings us to verse 15 where we see the purpose of all of this. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In every way that we can, we are to be subject to our civil authorities because we are called to do good in our world. That is, to do good as God defines it. To demonstrate godly character to the world around us. We saw that principle laid out already, didn't we? In verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is it we are to be marked by? What are these good deeds? Well, I don't think Peter here has in mind activism or social reform movements. And again, look, we have certain things that we are allowed to be involved in as as citizens. But we need to make sure that we keep in mind what God has specifically commanded us to. Simply put, we are told that the world should see in us godly character. And we are told what that godly character looks like. In Galatians 5, we're told what the fruit is that the Holy Spirit produces in the lives of his people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law.
Furthermore, we read another example of true Christian character in Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. You have to disobey your civil authorities. You want to go participate in some sort of social cause that you know by God's common grace will be good for your community? Fine, go do it, but do it this way. Otherwise, you are working contrary to the very spirit of godliness that God has commanded us to embody. We are to be people of integrity, morality, purity, general goodness, clear devotion to our God, and genuine love for our community. And as I said earlier, this often will be repulsive to the world. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light. But they will not be able to undercut the faith. You understand, Christian, your primary calling in this world is not to fight for your freedom. Right? You understand your primarily primary calling in this world is not even to fight for your life. Your primary call. I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. But your primary calling in this life is to lay down your life for the service of Christ, to preach Christ and Him crucified, to live in such a way that men see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And if that means our lives are cut short by human standards, that's in God's hands. And when we live in this way, we will be a refreshing contrast. In many ways, uh, an inexplicable contrast to the world that we live in. When we live that way, people will be drawn to Christ. Some will, and in that we have fulfilled our mission to show Christ to the world, to make disciples, and to remain faithful. And as we'll see, sometimes even the best way to do that is to live steadfastly and godly according to these characteristics, even while we suffer for Christ's sake. So as we strive to live honorably in a foreign land, we are to be subject to our civil authorities, and we are to do true good in our society. And now in verse 16, we read further that we must live as free servants. Live as free servants. And I know that sounds a little awkward, so look at the verse and let me explain. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Okay. As Christians, we need to understand that freedom in Christ is not licensed to do whatever we want. You understand that, right? Okay. It sounds paradoxical, I know. But true freedom is only found in bondage to Christ. Bondage to Jesus Christ is not a miserable thing, nor is it inappropriate. We are created for dependence on Him. And He is not a brutal taskmaster, nor is the work that He gives us an unpleasant work. In fact, we read in Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the promise that belongs to those who are in bondage to Christ. And Jesus himself in Matthew 11 calls to his people, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Become my bondservant and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That doesn't mean that everything in life is always easy. What it means is this is where true freedom and delight and rest are to be found. This is the only place they are to be found, because in Christ we are freed from the bondage of sin and the destruction of sin and we are reconciled to God. That means we belong to Him. We talked in the equip class, the idea of being redeemed. 
means that we have been purchased from slavery, but now we belong to the one who has purchased us. We are still owned. We are still servants. But now it is according to God's glorious and good design. In verse 16, Peter is applying that principle to how we live in the present world. We are free in Christ. Yes, your citizenship is in heaven. Yes, your king is Jesus, but we are not free to use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. That is, as an excuse for not submitting to our earthly authorities. But we are to submit to them, and we are to do good as servants of God. Again, our submission to earthly authorities is not primarily about them. It is about God and what he has placed us in this world to do and what commands he has given us to obey. And we obey in this world because we are servants of God and we obey him above all else. And we trust that even if we are in a bad circumstance in this world, that God has put us there for a reason and that reason is good. And then we come to verse 17 and Peter summarizes it all with a call for us to give due respect to all. He gives us a picture of the heart attitudes we ought to have in all of this. And he says, very frankly, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Who's the emperor? When Peter writes, Nero. Okay. Is it possible to show honor to evil authorities? Yes. And not only is it possible, it's commanded. Christians, even if you have to take your stand in this world, don't do it like the world does. Don't fight like the world does. Take your stand in this way. We may have to stand in disobedience because of our devotion to God, but we must never do it in a hasty, disrespectful way. This word honor has the idea of respect. We may not always respect the person in their behavior, but we always respect the institution. And this is something we ought to show, Peter says, to everyone. Everyone in society, from the emperor or the king or the president or whoever is at the top, all the way down to the local authorities, all the way down to that annoying person who cut you off on the way to church this morning or drove too slow in the left lane. And this general attitude toward all mankind gets even more specific when it enters the assembly of the saints, where we are today. We are called to love the brotherhood. Why? Because this is who we are. This is what we're like. We are, to, we are called to sincerely love our brothers and sisters in Christ. All of them. All of them, without exception, without qualification, without hesitation, without reservation. Why? Because God does. And because you honor Him. That's at the heart of all this. This flows from this one thing. We fear God. Now, very quickly. I want us to look at verses 18 and 19 and see how this call to honorable living applies in the context of the workplace. Peter is giving intensely practical instruction here. He's showing how Christians, even in a hostile world, ought to behave towards civil authorities and now in the workplace toward what we could call vocational authorities, employers, supervisors, and so on. Now, we don't need to spend too much time here, although... We certainly could, but the general attitude and principles are the same here as they are for the civil authorities. We are to be submissive, we are to do good, we are to behave as servants of God, and we are to give due respect to all. But in these verses, however, we see the ideas laid out 
with a few other key thoughts. Respect through submission and grace through endurance. Look at verse 18, where we see honorable living demonstrated in respect through submission. We see the connection there between the two. Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Don't just do what they say. Do it with an attitude of respect. Why? Because, again, it doesn't just matter what we do. It matters how we do it. There is a right thing to do, and there is a right way to do the right thing. This is where we Christians sometimes get ourselves into trouble, right? We might do the right thing, but we do it in the wrong way. No, there's a right way to do things too. Submit, be subject with respect. Now, it's interesting here, when Peter talks about servants, he's talking about household slaves who are indentured servants to a master. Now, we have to be very careful here because slavery in the Bible is not exactly the same thing as what we think of today. Right? And I'm not justifying one way or the other. I'm just saying that's the reality. And we also have to remember that Peter's point here is not to commend or condemn slavery. But his teaching is in this context. So that even in this context, and if in this context, then much more in all of the other contexts where we might find ourselves. Any arrangement of one person working under the authority of another, we are to act with submission through, or respect through submission. And the key words, again, are the same as they are towards civil authorities. Be subject with respect. Obey with a good and respectful attitude. Now, that's easy with some, isn't it? But some of you, I know, have been in situations, or maybe even are currently in situations, where that ain't so easy, is it? Peter isn't calling God's people to obey man rather than God when he says this. We know that. We've already seen that. Nor is he calling us to just lay down and allow other people to abuse us for no reason. But he is also instructing us not to return evil for evil and to remember that above all, we are called to Christian character in the midst of whatever circumstances we're in. In reality, Many today view any little offense as good enough, not good enough reason not just to quit their job and subvert their authority, but to try to destroy their boss on the way down. Peter says, even when we are mistreated, we still must operate in a spirit of respect and submission, knowing that God has put us in that, in that position. And that in that situation, he has us there for a reason. And while we might honestly need to make an effort to find another place to work or to put ourselves in a different situation if we can or even to deal with a bad situation on the ground in the workplace, we must do so with an attitude of respect and submission, showing godly patience in everything that we do. That brings us to verse 19 where we see honorable living also demonstrated in grace through endurance. For this is a gracious thing, Peter says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What is it that allows Christians to suffer unjustly and remain strong and to endure? What is it? Being mindful of God. And when a Christian is mindful of God and endures suffering and hardship and bad situations and mean bosses and and, and all sorts of mistreatment for whatever reason, in whatever situation we're in, when a Christian can navigate that with grace and perseverance, that shows something about the God we serve. Again, not the endowment, but living in each circumstance as a servant of God who is a recipient of His grace. We're focused on everything that Peter has covered to this point. In those moments, we remember that God is a sovereign God over every person and over every circumstance. We learned in equip class this morning, right? 
even over Pharaoh, another wicked king. We remember that God, Christ's protection in it all. We remember our eternal inheritance. We remember our call to demonstrate godliness before a hostile world for the sake of the gospel. So let me ask you this, Christian. Many of us would, would like to say, and we would never be able to answer this truthfully until we actually get in the situation, but many of us would like to say that we are willing to go to prison and to be executed for our faith, right? We'd, we'd want to say that. We would like to believe if we were put in that situation that, that we would stay faithful, and by God's grace we would, right? We're, we're willing to talk on that level. But let me ask you this. Are you willing to endure a difficult boss and remain respectful and gracious in the midst of difficult relationships, remembering that you are first and foremost a minister of God's grace in that workplace? I'm not saying you're never allowed to look for a better situation. You are. But while you are there, are you willing, by God's grace, to remain submissive and respectful and to endure? Christians, going back to civil authorities, we're going to stand for what we believe in. We're going to do what we know is right by God's command. But how often are our discussions and comments about the authorities that be disrespectful, cutting, inappropriate? In all these situations, this is one of the greatest displays of grace to a watching world. It is not by our deliverance from trouble. It is by our perseverance through it, by our godly example through it. This is why Peter says, is essentially all along here. What are Christians supposed to do when the heat of the world is turned up and their guns are aimed at us? What do we do? You just keep doing what you're called to do. You just remain faithful. You keep cultivating holiness. You keep, you keep seeking to do good. You keep seeking to submit to your authorities as far as you possibly can. And when you have to take a stand, you do so with grace. You do so with respect. Now, there's one other area of honorable living that Peter mentions. Not just civil authorities, not just the workplace, but also the home. The home is another place where we are called to show Christian honor, Christian character. But Peter doesn't get to that till chapter 3. So we're going to save that till we get there, because he's going to give special attention to that. But before we get to chapter 3, as we look at the rest of chapter 2, Lord willing, next week, we're going to continue to look at this call to honorable living in a foreign land. We've seen the command. We've seen the context. Next week, Lord willing, we will see the consequence of honorable living and the example of honorable living. So in these verses, we have two aspects of daily life where we're called as God's people to live honorably with the purpose of glorifying God compelling the lost to be saved, and silencing those who seek our harm. In these verses, we are also reminded by implication of the spiritual warfare in this world. That the warfare that is going on is not primarily physical. It is not primarily ideological. It is, at its root, spiritual. That is why the world never seems to be at peace. That's why the world can't ever seem to fix its problems. Because the world does not possess, nor does it use, the spiritual weapons and wisdom God has provided. That's why, Christians, we are not called to fight the world's battles with the world's weapons. Because they're wrong. That is why Christians are called to be set apart. Because we have the God-given spiritual weapons and we know what the true war is. It is not legislation. It is not social causes. It is not cultural sensitivities. Beloved, I'm a patriot. I love our country. But the issue isn't even keeping the American flag high on the flag. 
nor is it anything else in this world. The battle we fight is a spiritual war between good and evil, between salvation and destruction. So Christians, don't resort to fighting this warfare with the world's tactics and the world's weapons. Cancel culture is not in our arsenal. Destroying somebody else because we disagree with them is not in our arsenal. Bad words and harsh attitudes are not in our arsenal. Many Christians have tried those tactics, and they continue to try those tactics. And it's compelling because it appeals to our flesh. But that also is why many unbelievers resent Christians. Because we have allowed the world to believe that we are either overly sensitive and too easily offended, or else we are oppressive and seeking to impose our beliefs on everybody else outwardly only. And you know what? When we fight the world's battles with the world's weapons, they're right. But when we conduct ourselves according to the fruit of the Spirit in love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, when that marks how we fight this war, and when we strive to be submissive to our rulers and authorities and to be obedient and to be ready for every good work and to speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling, if at all possible, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people, then we are a positive gospel influence in society. And above all, we please God. Christians, this is how we must be. And if we ever have to take a stand, if we ever have to disobey an earthly authority, it must only be for these things and in this way. My prayer is that God would grant us to navigate these challenges with wisdom and strength and grace for the sake of His glory and for the spread of His gospel. Let's pray. Father, we need Your grace for this.